Let's pray as we come to the scriptures. Father, open your word. Help us to see your heart. Help us to be willing to conform our broken hearts to your glorious heart. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've had the royal wedding. Are you, most of you watched it. I know not, not everyone will confess they did, but I know many of you sat and watched at least parts of the royal wedding. And the big thing out of the royal wedding, at least for me, being a preacher, was Reverend Michael Curry, the African-American Episcopalian preacher at the wedding. And his message was all about love. In fact, I was talking to a friend this week and he said, he just said, love, love, 80 times love. I got the point. He said, love is the only way. We need to rediscover the redemptive power of love, a love that is stronger than death, a love that can change the world, a world where love is the way. Now, his talk caused, caused a bit of controversy as I was looking at news outlets. He maybe spoke too long. I thought he was all right. Some people said he uh, upstaged the bride, and you should never upstage the bride. Uh, some people were quite inspired by his message. But at least the one good thing Reverend Curry did is he spoke about love. And we like it when people speak about love. And let's face it, in a royal wedding, it's hard to argue when someone keeps talking about love. So that's good. What people don't like, and it's just as well he didn't do this, they don't like it when people talk about an angry God, when people talk about you know, that God of the Old Testament. They don't like it when we talk about a God of wrath or judgment. And I understand that because I tell you, I'm a preacher, I do this stuff all the time. I don't like talking about that. I'd much rather talk about love and mercy and peace and joy and grace and those sorts of things. So churches should just confine themselves to those types of topics. Be a bit more upbeat. You know, people come along to church and they've got enough troubles of their own rather than to be beaten about by judgment and sin and issues like that. There is a problem, however, with that sort of natural thinking. And the problem is that you cannot love in any significant manner without a desire for justice. Justice is simply an outworking of love. You cannot hope. A real hope without the hope of justice. You cannot have peace without the hope of justice. In fact, if you listen to Reverend Curry's talk, as he kept talking about love, he actually brought it back to this topic of justice because that was a natural thing to do. He quoted from Martin Luther King, who fought for justice. And Martin Luther King's great, great sermon where he quotes from Amos chapter 5, verse 24, let, as we're talking about love, how about a world where justice rolls down like a river, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, this world dominated by love and therefore justice, a world where no child goes to bed hungry, a world of love. We cannot separate love and justice. And justice, the outworking of love, demands judgment. It means it demands that we weigh what is right and what is wrong, and that we are committed to setting to rights. And so that evil is not ignored, but it is held to account. And we try as we can to make sure the punishment fits the crime. And now it's not just God that has this perspective, you have this perspective. 
our society, our media has this perspective. Every day, virtually, at least every week, there is a major story about was justice done? I, I, I prepared this on Thursday, and an Australian grandmother has been arrested in Malaysia and sentenced to death for drug trafficking. Oh, is that fair? There was a young girl raped in Queensland, in Brisbane, by two young blokes. They said she asked for it. They got eight years in prison. But four and a half on parole. Is that fair? For what they did to that girl? This guy, this horrible, horrible story of, what's his name? Rick Thorburn, who killed his 12-year-old foster daughter to protect his son who'd been abusing her. He got 20 years without parole. Is that fair? Is that just? We care, don't we? Everybody cares about justice. And we live in a world with so many systemic injustices. Children go to bed hungry and cold and wet in our world, while others get fat off their suffering, perhaps even us. I've just recently been in Central Asia. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. Lovely, lovely time there. You know the big problem as I saw it and as I talked to the people I could talk to there? The big problem is injustice. The big problem is corruption. The big problem is fat people abusing people who aren't fat. And so the whole society suffers. And no one trusts anyone. They all tell lies. Justice. It rankles us, it disturbs us, and it should. We hope for a better world, a world of justice and peace, a world where there is lasting joy, a world, as Michael Curry said, where love reigns, transformed. And the prophet Micah shares our expectation and our hope. He says that, that the Lord God is determined in love to set things right and he will hold the wicked accountable and the punishment will fit the crime and he will restore and he will renew. It's a great hope. It's our hope. See, we all want justice. It's good, isn't it? The problem we have, we want justice, but I don't know that I really want God's justice. Because I want justice, but all too often I find that God's justice might collide with my justice or my sense of justice. See, what I really want is I want what is right and I want what is fair and I want what is reasonable and I want what is best for me and for those that I love. By my assessment. So justice is incredibly... I'm passionate about justice as long as I'm in charge. As long as I determine what's right and wrong, set the law, as long as I weigh the judges, as long as I am judge, well, frankly, as long as I'm God. But we're not God. We distort justice to suit our own needs and desires, even when it costs others. Yes, I know you're suffering, but what can I, what can I do? I've got to look after my family. God's justice, however, is not tilted towards my preferences and my perspective. He is judge of all the earth. I love my family. I care. God loves every family. I love my people. I'm passionate about my ethnicity. God loves every people. 
I love my nation. I will fight for my nation. And nations go to war as people love their nations. And God loves every nation. I love myself. I want the best for myself. God loves every self equally. In the book of Judges in the Old Testament, which is a pretty unjust book as you read through it, there's all sorts of terrible things happen there. There's this phrase that turns up two times, that the people did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That is basically the recipe for injustice. When we look after my justice, because it's right for me, it's right, this is right, I'm doing it. Hitler was an expert, he did what was right. And pick your tyrant, they're all doing what's right in their own eyes. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. What I can do, I do do. And it's right, because I can. Chapter 2, Micah calls the leaders of Israel, particularly Jerusalem, to account because they have disregarded God's justice to pursue their own justice. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and they seize them and houses and they take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. I do that. I lie in bed planning about and plotting and planning for tomorrow. What am I going to do tomorrow? How am I going to prosper tomorrow? And those things that I think in my head that I can do, I will do. Because I have the power to do it. It's pretty simple. But just because I can do something doesn't make it right or just. And God's justice will stand. What we reap, we will sow. As we have done, so it will be done to us and the punishment will fit the crime. In fact, God is planning. God has a plot and a plan to plunder the land. God has a plan for those who plot and plunder. <coughs> There's got too many P's in that sentence written in my brief little notes here. God has a plan for those who plot and plan to plunder the land of others simply because they can. Bad sentence, John. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster. Here's the Lord's plan. I am planning disaster against this people from which they cannot save themselves. You will no longer walk proudly. You'll no longer be king and boss. For it will be a time of calamity. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our fields to traitors. See, if you want to live in a world where the strong have the power and the freedom to oppress those not so strong, and if that's okay, well, in judgment, God says, I'm going to hand you over to that world. And when I hand you over to what you want, you may find out that you're not the strongest billy goat on the block. So do not be surprised if you get plundered as you have plundered others. The ruiners will be ruined. And the irony is, and this happens to all of us, they rail against the injustice. 
We're utterly ruined, they say. My people, our possessions divided up. These people have taken it from me. What we've had is gone to traitors. Oh, yes, I get fat off others. Yes, I unjustly profit from others. But when I lose it, what's going on? The world's falling apart. At the time of Joshua, when the people of Israel entered the promised land, the land was divided between the 12 tribes by lot, and each family was allocated a portion of land. In fact, this land was so important that there were even rules that if, if for some reason your family lost your portion of land, every 50 years it would all be reset, and everyone would get their land back. The land mattered. Michael looks forward to a day of land distribution. Verse 5, Therefore, you unjust oppressors, therefore you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. There will be no land for you. There will be no inheritance in God's kingdom, amongst God's people. Those of you who reject the Lord as king, who reject his justice and his law, have no part in his kingdom. And in justice, God hands you over to what you wanted. You want to have no part of me? Have no part of me. No portion of land for you. That's a pretty heavy message, I know, and it's hard to take. This subject we're talking about of God's justice and judgment, but God is not like that. God is, for many people, he's my mate. I think I'm okay with God. We might sit down and have a drink together. I'm not perfect, but I'm okay. Micah, see, Micah's really not the prophet for these people. In fact, he tells us in verse 11, there's just a prophet for these people. If a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. Yes, have you you got a hard-earned thirst today? Well, let me tell you, I've got the best cold beer for you. Straight from the Lord's hand. And do you feel like a twoies? There's the prophet for these people. They don't want the truth. They don't want their behavior exposed. So their preachers preach. It's translated here, prophesy. I think I'd rather use the word preach because it kind of connects with us a bit closer. Do not preach, their preachers say. Do not preach about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Really? Does he do such things? Stop talking about this judgment. God is not like that. He's not going to let such things happen. He is not impatient. Our God is not rash. He doesn't do things like this. And you know what? The Lord is slow to anger. And he's abounding in love. But he is judge of all the earth and he is committed in love to justice. And there will be no justice without judgment. And judgment will fall at the right time that he apportions. Yes, he's patient. But there is no no forever in his patience, in his long-suffering. He will not tolerate our sin, our rebellion, our pride, our self-glorification, our injustice. He will hand us over to face the consequences. So the Lord says... Do not my words do good to those whose ways are upright. 
yes, yes, yes. Yet, <laughs> lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like, like men returning from battle, just tearing the good clothes from them. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You're all set, get out, lady. You take my blessing from their children forever. Oh, you haven't got a home to go to, have you, have you Mickey? Oh, well, bad luck to you. You expect God to turn a blind eye? That would be unjust to ignore such wickedness. So the Lord declares what he will do. He's saying it again. He says to them, get up, go away, for this is not your resting place because it's defiled. It's ruined beyond all remedy. What do you do when it's defiled, when there's uncleanness? You've got water in your petrol tank. What do you do? You've got cancer in your body. What do you do? You get rid of it. You clean it up and you make a completely fresh start. There is no other way. But they don't, they don't want to hear that. They want someone to come and say, oh, a bit of wine and beer for you is just the thing God wants. They don't want to hear the prophet who comes and says, you need a clean start. You need to get out or get cleaned up. Micah spoke 2,800 years ago and everything he says is powerfully relevant to us today. Who wants to hear about God's justice? Who wants to be told about judgment or that we're accountable because we're unjust, whether it be intentional or systemic? Why don't someone please come and preach some wine and beer to us? And we're all proud and we're all selfish and we all look after number one and we all cause grief. We pursue our own interests at the expense of others. We even do it, not just at the country level or the ethnicity level, we even do it at the family level. We fight for control. We fight for our justice. And if you are married, you do it at your marital level. The incredible injustices that you've had to face. And you'll fight for it. And there'll be tension. You've got two people fighting for their own justice. God is going to clean up the mess. He is going to remove the defilement of the wicked and the proud and the unjust from his kingdom. God won't do that. We're mates. Give me some beer. No. no. God's justice will prevail. He will hand us over to what we've chosen. He will not compromise his commitment to righteousness and the glory of his name. We have a big problem. As Paul the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, we are by nature objects of wrath. We're the unjust. We're the wicked. What hope? See, we have a massive problem. The problem we have, to state it in a kind of a weird way, but a very, very true way, the problem that we have is God's holiness and God's love. That demand justice. And our only hope 
runs on the same tracks. Our only hope is the fountain of God's holiness and love. It's a very abrupt change here in Micah chapter 2 in verse 12. Because suddenly there is hope in the darkness and it's kind of hard to explain. It's so abrupt. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. He will break through the gate and go out. The king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. The Lord is promising here through his prophet to gather his people and restore amongst them a righteous remnant of his people. And he will be their shepherd and they will be his flock, the sheep of his pasture in his pen. But he will make a way for them. He will burst out. He will burst through and break down the barriers and lead them to good pasture and still waters. He will be their good shepherd. He will be their king. He is the Lord Yahweh. Micah is picking up themes that he will later expand on in his prophecy. But here we've just got a faint cryptic hint of these themes. What's he talking about? Why so abrupt? But as God's story unfolds through the Bible, by the time we reach the end of the story, there is no hint. There is fulfillment. In John chapter 10, Jesus picks up a lot of this imagery. Flock, shepherd, gate, pen. And he says, it's all about me. Very truly, John chapter 10, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. We're in this pen. We've got the shepherd. We've got a gate. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. He makes it more explicit. Therefore, Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come to me are th- before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved and they will go in and come out and find pasture. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full, says Jesus. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You see, the links, Jesus is the good shepherd. He says, follow me and you will find life. You will be part of my flock. You will be part of the remnant that are being saved. Jesus says, I am the gate. I am the only access point by which you may enter this and be part of this flock, this saved remnant. And how does he burst forth? 
How does he open the gate? How does he gather his people? Jesus says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd will die for his sheep. You see, God will never turn a blind eye to our injustice. Not to yours, not to mine, not to anyone else's. It matters. It matters so much that the living God determines to bear the judgment that we deserve to execute justice on the person of his own righteous son, who is God with us, God in human flesh. God's justice, which is simply an expression of his love and holiness and righteousness. God's grace and God's mercy and kindness, which are simply an expression of his love and holiness and righteousness. God's justice, God's love and mercy and grace, God's justice, God's mercy and grace, God's justice and mercy and grace intersect collide at the cross of Christ for you and me that we might be brought into the fold of God and be saved and be led out through his death and resurrection into green pastures beside still waters. That God might be just and the one who justifies or makes righteousness, those who put their faith in the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. All of us seek justice, just like Micah does. Our only hope is in the living God, and his justice, as hard and necessary as that may be, and our only hope for salvation from his judgment is to lean on the one who has borne the judgment for us. The good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus says, follow me. He says, live under my reign so that I may transform you by my spirit so that you may work for justice and live for justice because justice matters. But we live in a complex world, don't we? You know, I work for a bank, the Banking Royal Commission, we foreclose on houses when people can't pay their mortgages. We kick them out. I work for a council. I do what the councillors want, and some of them are... It's hard. It's complex. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I have clients. I represent my clients. It's, it's not as easy as ABC. I run a small business. It's competitive. You know, if you don't fight, you're not going to survive. We've got to get our margins up. Otherwise, we go down. The others all want to squash us. It's complex. I'm married. Life is complex. Sometimes it's enough to make it through to the next week. Still married. I'm wealthy, and children go to bed hungry and wet and cold. How do you set a course for justice? 
It's overwhelming. It can feel disabling. It's just too hard. Well, I want us to say, just in closing, just start with the basics. Start with the basics in your world. Our theme this year for Penobaps is walk humbly with our God. A little statement taken from the prophet Micah. If we would just walk humbly with our God, and I've been bringing before you these three verses or two verses from Philippians chapter 2 as our theme verses for the entire year. Philippians chapter 2. Where are my glasses going in case I don't remember it? Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit when you work for the bank but rather in humility, value others above yourself when you're a lawyer. Not looking to your own interests when you're married, but each of you looking to the interests of others when you're a real estate agent. In your relationships with one another, even if you run a, sm even if you run a small business, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Just start with the simple things and work for a world of justice. Reverend Curry's world of love where justice rolls down like a river and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Strengthened by faith in the Lord Jesus. Let me pray. Father God, help us to follow Jesus. Help us to walk humbly Help us to consider others more important than ourselves. And help us not be complacent in a world of injustice, but be committed to your truth and your righteousness and your praise as we rejoice in the righteousness you've given us through our Lord and Saviour. Amen.